Good evening, everybody. You're listening to Thorn and Cross, Haunted Nights Live. This is Alistair Cross, and I'm here with my co-host and collaborator, Tamara Thorne. Stay tuned, because tonight we're going to be talking all kinds of fun, dark things with an author whose essays and stories have appeared in more than 50 literary journals. All right, our music's not going to work. So here we are. Uh, this is the yeah. Cross, Hot Nights Live. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, pardon me if the music just starts up when I'm in the middle of talking. We'll find out. Uh, uh, good evening. <laughs> Welcome to Thorn and Cross, Haunted Nights Live. Again, we're your hosts, Alistair Cross and Tama Thorne. Thank you for joining us. Uh, tonight we're talking with Kevin P. Keating, who, after working as a boiler as a boiler maker in the steel mills of Ohio, became a professor of English and began teaching at Baldwin-Wallace University and Cleveland State University. His essays and stories have appeared in more than 50 literary journals. He is the author of The Natural Order of Things, as well as his latest novel, The Captive Condition, which is available now. He lives in Cleveland. And before we introduce him, I'm going to turn the time over to my co-host, Tamara Thorne, who's going to tell you a little bit about The Captive Condition. All right. This is uh, the book. For years, Normandy Falls has been haunted by its strange history and the aggrieved spirit said to roam its graveyards. Despite warnings, Edmund Campion is determined to go there and pursue an advanced degree in literature. At first, things proceed wonderfully, but Edmund soon learns he isn't immune to the impersonal trappings of fate. His girlfriend, Morgan Fay, smashes his heart. His advisor, Professor Martin Kingsley, crushes him with frivolous assignments and his dead-end job begins to take a toll on his physical and mental health. He's all been there. One night, he stumbles upon the body of Emily Ryan, a proud and unapologetic townie, drowned in her family pool. Was it suicide, Edmund wonders, or murder? In the days following the tragedy, Emily's husband, Charlie, crippled by self-loathing and ultimately frozen with fear, attempts to flee his disastrous life and sends her twin daughters to stay with the Kingsleys. Possessed with an unnamed preternatural power, the twins know the professor seduced their mother, and they have had a hand in her death. With their piercing stares, the girls fill Martin with remorse and dread as he so desperately tries to hide from his wife. Elsewhere, a low-level criminal named the Donk takes over a remote cottage, complete with a burial ground and moonshine still, and devises plans for both Xavier d'Avignon as the eccentric chef of a failing French restaurant supplies customers with a hallucinogenic cocktail he makes in his kitchen, and Colette Collins, an elderly local artist of the surreal and psychedelic, attends a New Year's Eve retrospective that is destined to set the whole town on fire. And All I right. Wait. Get through this I, book. Uh, I'm loving it. Yeah, me too, me too. All right. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Kevin P. Keating. Hello, Kevin. Hello. Hello, guys. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real you pleasure to be welcome. here. You are welcome. Oh, uh, yes, we are. we both have received this book, and uh, we've been overloaded with uh, <laughs> new material. So we actually haven't finished this book, although we were both pretty well into it and very much enjoying it. So anybody listening, don't worry about getting any accidental spoilers from us because we're yeah. not there yet. No. <laughs> but, great, but, great. But so far, this book is fantastic. And the first thing that I have noticed about it that I, I, I want to talk about a little bit is um, this has a really, uh, well, first, it's very uh, poetic, really. The prose is actually beautiful. Um, beautiful. And there's a certain darkness to it that isn't, uh, it reminds me a little bit of Edgar Allan Poe. Is that a good thing? Because that's... <laughs> That's good, right? right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how can you go wrong with uh, a comparison right. to Edgar Allan Poe? It's very nice, actually. Well, um, a lot of people, if he's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought you would say like Fifty Shades of Grey or something, but uh, oh. Poe will work. That's nice. No, not nice. at all. <laughs> not at um, all. Yeah, you know, a, a few critics have made that comparison, and um, I do make a few references to Poe in the piece, although uh, a lot of that stuff came a little bit later. Um, for example, 
there's a drink that people in the town seem to enjoy maybe uh, a little much too much. It's called the Red Death. And uh, you might remember a short story by that name, yeah. uh, The Mask of the Red Death by Poe. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I, I think later, once you get deeper into the novel, you'll probably recognize uh, the cask of Amatiato, where wow. uh, the protagonist, right, Fortunato, takes his nemesis down into the catacombs beneath mm-hmm. his family estates, and uh, terrible things happen from there. Oh, I can't Very wait. Very nice. Very nice. I teased on Ray Bradbury, and I'll bet you've read a lot of him, too. Your prose is so beautiful. I like Bradbury. You know, it's funny. I actually haven't read a ton of Bradbury. Some short stories, uh, Fahrenheit 451, of course, but um, not a a lot. Although maybe... um, Maybe you can answer this for me. I wonder, did Bradbury ever contribute to the Twilight Zone at all? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Maybe I'm channeling a little bit of that. Well, it's it's your style. What Alistair said, the uh, prose is just beautiful. And that was what he he basically taught me to write because he could build places and, you know, towns and everything and it'd be as alive as the characters in in the story. He placed a great deal of emphasis on uh, setting, and he was so precise, yeah. right, and his descriptive mm-hmm. detail. Um, but I, I should read more of it, his stuff. And as a matter of fact, I've got this gigantic book, like the collected short fiction of Bradbury. And I made my way through some of it, but um, I haven't put a huge dent in, into it yet, but I'll get to it. Yeah. Try Dandelion Wine, the novel. Oh, that's that's my favorite. That's another one I've got on my shelf. Um, Yeah, and for sure I'll read that. And I think oh, that one's not quite as dark, right? No, yeah, I don't. But not like you are. You're darker than Chris Moore too, and you also remind (laughs) us of him, Christopher Moore. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've seen yeah. that as well, and I, I have to confess I haven't read Christopher Moore's stuff. From what oh. I hear, he's um, his stuff is pretty funny too, right? Yeah, it he's is. Hilarious. You're yeah. darker. You're darker. But yes, definitely. You have the humor <laughs> running through there that it's it's that kind of thing. <laughs> there it is, and I have to say, my favorite, my favorite, and I don't know if it's supposed to be funny or not, but I get a I, I get a kick out of those um, uh, Kingsley's daughters, the the. The twin girls. <laughs> oh yeah, yes. I love them. Yes. <laughs> it's funny because something that we're working on right now, we have uh, two little girls, twins, actually running around, always holding hands, and you know, people look at them and think of you know the shining twins, and it's really yeah. funny because <laughs> when I was reading this, I texted Tamara, I'm like, oh my god, he's got shining twins in his too. This is great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> play a much bigger yeah. role, I, I'm guessing, than ours. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it, it, it's uh, funny that you m- mentioned The Shining, too, and it's like you can't have twin uh, little girls in, in a book or a film, I, I think, without people thinking to those iconic images that Kubrick created, the, the girls oh, yeah. at the end of the hallway, Danny riding the oh. big wheel. So, yeah. you know, when I was creating my own twins, and I played around with that, by the way. I I had, um, f- first it was two boys, and for some reason, um, two nasty little boys didn't quite seem as sinister, because maybe you expect yeah. little boys to be sinister. <laughs> so, yeah. But I thought the girls gave it... <laughs> The girls gave it a, a, an added creepiness, but again, yeah. now you're kind of stuck with that iconic image of uh, The Shining. So yeah, yeah. you almost have that. to make it a little bit funny, you know? It's yeah. got to be a bit tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. We always put in little nods to other things. It, it's fun, and I think people who like the genres, you know, the dark genre, really enjoy seeing that, oh, look. They made a reference yeah. to Walking Dead or Shining or anything. Yeah, I hope they do anyway because I sure like doing it. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 uh, I'm a big fan of that too. I drop little references to just the stuff that I like, and it's like an Easter egg hunt. And some people yeah. will pick up on it, and some won't. But that, that's an added thing. It's a, you, you can still enjoy the book without um, getting those references. 
Exactly. Uh, the one that just perked my ears up because I wrote a book called Sorority that was about King Arthur was uh, Morgan Fay. I instantly, oh God, I got it. I can't wait to read this book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love your names. You you play with names a lot, right? I do. Um, Well, I'll tell you, at the very beginning of the book, there's um, uh, the headmaster, like principal of a school, and his name is um, Father Montague, and that's like a play on M.R. James, uh, who is Montague Rhodes James, and here it's uh, James Rhodes Montague. I just reversed the order of of the names. Nice. Doesn't take much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then um, Father Montague, secretly M.R. James, uh, tells a little <laughs> haunted story of a man named Nathaniel Wakefield. And this is my sly reference to Nathaniel Hawthorne, who wrote a short story called Wakefield. No, and nice. That's a truly <laughs> creepy story. If you've never read uh, Hawthorne, I mean, his stuff is oh, very ghoulish, you know. Yeah. And Wakefield, I think, from my money, Wakefield's just my personal favorite. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of that sort of thing going on. I, I ah. haven't read Wakefield, but has anybody here read uh, Rappuccini's Daughter? I have, but I can't oh, recall. Yeah. Not recently. Not, not yeah, recently. That's, yeah. I was that's a nice still when I read recently. it. Yeah. yeah. So let's yeah. talk the about your people. Your, Oh no, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, oh I was just, well, just going to say the 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 one people seem to read a lot is um Young Goodman Brown, right? It's like oh, yeah. always anthologized in the American lit uh uh-huh. books and things. Nice. Um yeah. I want to talk about I want to talk a little bit about your uh beginnings. Uh you you also have another book, uh, The Natural Order of Things, which uh, we're done with the captive condition. We both actually want to check out um, yep. And so this is so the captive condition is your your second novel, uh, but obviously you've been you know writing for a while. You've got you know over uh, you know you've been published in over you know fifty literary magazines and things like that. So let's talk about uh, let's talk a little bit about your journey to publication. Where did it all begin? Uh, well, I think well, this is a good connection with your show, actually, because uh, recently you had on as a guest uh, Richard Christian Matheson. Is that right? Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. Right. Yep, we love and him. If, if I'm, I'm not wrong about this, I don't think he was at one point the uh, editor or fiction editor of Twilight Zone magazine way back when. I think he was involved. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I know he was publishing there, and I think he had a hand in it too in some way. Um, something I'm sure we could confirm some way. But yeah. um, I remember I was 14 years old. This was in the 80s, and uh, that's when I sent my first short story, and it was to Twilight Zone magazine. And I'm almost sure he was like the fiction judge or something. You know, it clicked. Uh, when I saw the name, and he's the son of Richard Matheson, right? Oh yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Oh, house. So that, so that was my very first uh, dive into. It was some sort of contest they were holding. It was never won, and um, I just kept at it. And I, yeah. my stuff started getting published. Uh, you know, I was in my late twenties. And then one day I was in my 30s and I still wanted to be a writer. And um, I said, well, it's time that I start taking myself a little bit more seriously. Like if I really want to accomplish this, I can't just be someone who dabbles in writing, someone who produces a story without um, lots and lots of revision. If I want to take myself seriously, I've got to just sit down and do the hard work of uh, producing and then rewrite, 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 rewrite until it's perfect. So I did that, and I started getting published more and more and more and more uh, throughout my 30s. And then I put together my first book, The Natural Order of Things, and was rejected, I think, something like 15 times by publishers. (laughs) Yeah. Finally, this is a true story. I'm not making this up. 
a little publisher in Canada picked it up. Yeah, I'd love to publish this, the editor said. On April 1st, (laughs) uh, this is a few (laughs) months later, April 1st, I get a phone call from the editor. Sorry, we're going out of business. We no longer be able to publish your novel. (laughs) That same... Same day, I'm not joking, that evening, I get a call from another publisher who said, we just read your manuscript, we'd like to publish this thing. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I'm thinking, this is some sort of cosmic gag. Someone's playing a joke on me. (laughs) But this uh, new publisher decided to go with it. It's Aqueous Books. It was out of uh, New Orleans, and it's a small operation. A woman down there, um, I think she would produce like one book a month. She chose my book, and somehow, some way, shortly after its publication, it got recognized by a bunch of critics, uh, received a star re- review in Publishers Weekly and Booklist and on and on. And from there, it became a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prizes. Oh, um, nice. I was, yeah, flown out to California and uh, got to meet a lot of incredible writers. And um, as a matter of fact, I love to tell this story. There's a little wine and cheese reception right before the big ceremony at the University of Southern California. And there I am, um, totally scared to death. I'm among all of these great famous writers. And I drink a glass of wine and another glass of wine. I'm trying to loosen up, you know. (laughs) So I may have overdone it a bit. And as I'm walking to the big auditorium, I turn to the uh, older, distinguished woman next to me. And I said, hey, lady, let's get out of here and go to the bar and skip the ceremony and have some drinks. She looked at me like I was an insect, you know, totally appalled. So we sit in the auditorium, we go through the ceremony, they're announcing the winners, it comes to my category. Um, I did not win for my category, it was um, best first novel published in the U.S. So we go through the rest of the ceremony, and finally at the end of this uh, process, they say, and now we'd like to uh, bring up the winner of the... uh, uh, Lifetime Achievement Award, and the award this year goes to Miss Margaret Atwood. And here comes the lady that I asked to go out and have drinks. Oh. With. <laughs> <laughs> so she takes to the stage, Miss Margaret Atwood, and then, believe it or not, uh, so I'm mortified, you know. And she gets up there on stage in front of all of these great distinguished editors and agents and so on, and she starts telling a bunch of dirty jokes. <laughs> oh, really? That was, wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Believe it or not. Yeah. That's amazing. That's awesome. Wow. She was talking about how she used to go to something called a drive-thru uh, hot tub. Like, what the hell is a drive-thru <laughs> hot tub? <laughs> Look at movies. Oh, oh yeah, right. <laughs> so that that was my brush with fame. Right. <laughs> these these conventions and all that. I used to go to them all the time. They try to get you to drink. They want you yeah. to bully yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I figured you know the bottles were out. Yeah. 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 You That's get awesome. there. Get in a con before the. Uh, before the panel you're going to be on, and they're trying to get you to drink. I I, I used to go, okay, I'll have one fuzzy navel because even I can't feel that. Right. You know? <laughs> oh, right. nice. I sort of learned my lesson from that, you know, maybe yeah. one drink before, but uh, kind of go easy until after the ceremony yeah. <laughs> yeah, or exactly. the panel or what? <laughs> or oh, reading. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I thought no. you were asking a question. Oh <laughs> no, I was gonna. Yeah, no. So I was just gonna say. So, so what about uh, the captive condition? How did this one come to be? Yeah. Ah, uh, so um, I was sort of already at work on the second book once the first one uh, was accepted for publication by the tiny publisher. 
when it when the natural order of things became a, a finalist for uh, the LA Times Book Prize, um, I managed to get an agent. He put a two-book uh, deal together with Random House, and they republished my first one as a vintage uh, paperback. Uh-huh. And they accepted just the manuscript. I think it was accepted just on the first chapter, uh, the captive condition. Um, it's not the prologue, but the scene where um, Professor Kingsley is lounging by the swimming pool with his next door neighbor. Um, and so just based on the strength of that, they decided to take a risk on me and publish the captive condition. And I, I worked on, I'd say each book took me about two and a half years each, roughly. Oh, really? And I, I think the reason for that is um, I just sort of obsess over the prose, and I go over the sentences yeah. again and again and again, trying to get it to sound the right way. Yeah, Never fully succeeding, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I used to but, that. I had an editor who told me to stop it. Yeah, he said, if I let you, you would take six weeks going over every chapter. Just stop it. Just write it fast. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Well, you know, it's funny. I did actually produce the the first draft of the captive condition. I I could crank that out, but it was embarrassing. I can't believe I even showed it to my editor, and I'm surprised they didn't chase me out of the building. It was um, originally (laughs) – the the thing was a monster. It was like 500 pages, and uh, I got it. I cut it down to uh, in manuscript form about 300 pages. So there was a lot of just unnecessary rubbish in there that needed to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always liked overwriting because it makes it so easy to streamline it. It, it the editing is, becomes fun. Yeah, totally. You yeah. know, I I agree that a hundred percent. You know, it's tough getting that first draft out when you're staring at a blank page. But once it's on the page, you can kind of see yeah. what's wrong with it, and you can start to tinker and cut and paste and do all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. We we put notes at the edges, and uh, we're right at the end. We're in the last few pages of a novel we've been working on for three or four months, and just you know, nonstop, and we're so excited. But, oh, yeah. we need to change what he's doing. Oh, he's got to be a super taster. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Doing, right. Oh, oh, so we just make notes and keep writing. Instead but, of, yeah, we definitely, yeah. And, and, and on that note, we definitely know um, about cutting because our first uh, collaborative novel that we did, uh, Cliff House Haunting, was, what was it, 160, 170,000 words? Some ridiculous, yeah. yeah, some crazy amount. I mean, wow. it, it was just massive. But, you know, the cool thing is, is what we did is we went in and we cut out um, a major, like, thread, like a yeah. like a like one of the main characters that, that we felt could be removed from the story, and his story is still saved, and it fits perfectly into an idea that we have that we're going to start next year. So yeah. that all works out. So Nothing's wasted. Yeah. He didn't mind because yeah. now he can be more of a star, you know. Uh, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's, oh, it's like a, a spin-off series or something. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're gonna yeah. end the world um, in that one. So. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna do. Yeah. I'm gonna um, mention our <clears throat> listening. I'm gonna take a, a real quick break and, and mention some things. And uh, when we get back, uh, I we would love to hear you do a reading from Captive Condition. Uh, so. Uh, you're listening to Thorn and Cross, Haunted Nights Live, and we are your hosts, Alistair Cross and Tamara Thorne. You can learn more about what we do at our website, alistaircross.com and tamarathorne.com. You can visit our mutual blog at thornandcross.wordpress.com. If you tweet, our handle is at thorncross. Be sure to visit us on Facebook and give our Haunted Nights Live page a like. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at authorsontheair.com. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC, and we are here tonight with our guest, Kevin P. Keating, who is the author of The Natural Order, the Natural Order of Things, as well as The Captive Condition, which Tamara and I are both currently reading and enjoying mm-hmm. very much. And uh, so... Uh, can you give us a reading, Kevin, from the captive condition? 
Sure. Uh, this is from um, an early passage in the book. It's about two pages long or so, so I hope that's not too excessive. Oh, you're fine. And here, uh, the uh, main character, um, it's a young guy named Edmund Campion. Uh, he's about to go off to college, but before he does so, he meets with the headmaster of his high school. Uh, this guy, Father Montague is his name, very imposing name, um, is sort of warning him against going away to Normandy College. So I'll start there. The headmaster clamped his teeth on his pipe, chewing back and forth on the already masticated stem. You want specifics, Mr. Campion, very well. He leaned back in his chair and interlaced his fingers over his ever-expanding paunch. Twisted Willows was the home of the college's founder, Nathaniel Wakefield, an enduring figure of myth and an accomplished botanist, posthumously recognized, along with his near contemporary, Gregor Mendel, as a pioneer in the emerging science of genetics. He was a human oddity, a remarkable freak, notorious not only for his nervous tics and his off-putting habit of holding imaginary conversations with the exotic plants in his greenhouse, but also for his more unorthodox practices. There was talk that he'd abandoned a wife in some faraway city and had come to the wilderness for the sole purpose of conducting experiments on the unsuspecting townspeople, demanding that they undergo excruciating procedures that left them hideously maimed and scarred. Silly rumors, really, but it would have been much better for all involved if there had been some truth to these garbled and exaggerated accounts. Because you see, Mr. Campion, the things that took place inside that house were far more diabolical than anything the gossip mongers could invent. Already steeped in sin, having abandoned the power of scientific inquiry, liberated at last from the irritable necessity of reaching for facts and evidence, Dr. Wakefield fell victim to, shall we say, conjugal mania. To describe his midnight bacchanals as satanic is not an exaggeration. No, not when they involve incest, bestiality, coprophilia, Unwilling to participate any longer in these lascivious experiments, the citizens conspired to send strangers passing through town to the doctor's house, tramps and roughneck canal workers mainly. Some of them were never seen or heard from again. Now there were whispers of necrophilia. And one night, a group of men and women gathered in the town square to discuss this abnormal behavior. They demanded answers. Who was he, this Wakefield, a man so monstrous, so human? Resolving to put a stop to the madness once and for all, they marched into the valley. Hours later, under mysterious circumstances, the doctor's house caught fire, aided by a 10-gallon drum of petroleum. The following morning, the authorities discovered among the smoldering ruins the un unidentified remains of a man, a charred, leathery thing no bigger than a dog, its hands clutching its chest. Alas, the doctor had met with a wretched and ignominious end. But there were some who had their doubts and believed the wrong man had died that night, an unsuspecting houseguest, the latest victim of sadomasochistic horrors. The ever-resourceful Wakefield, meanwhile, escaped through an underground passage and fled into the surrounding forest. Now, here's the thing. In addition to his dark legacy, Wakefield sired 12 illegitimate and unbaptized children bearing his name. Children of sin, children of the laboratory, genetic aberrations. And to this very day, their traits live on in the people like a secret blood disease. Godless men cook poison in their cellars, Mothers take their own lives. Small children vanish without a trace. Marriages slowly crumble and fall apart. It's the apotheosis of failure, a shadowland of rootlessness and poverty. 
and you would be wise to keep your curiosity in check, Mr. Campion. Otherwise, you may find yourself coarsened and brutalized by that direly indigent town. And worse still, you might discover, possibly to your liking, that Normandy Falls is a most beguiling place, especially for a young man who has lost his way in the world and now belongs nowhere else, an outcast of the universe. Ooh. Very nice. Yeah, this is, it is, it is. And this, this brings us very naturally into another topic I want to ask you about, which is Normandy Falls. This is a fascinating little place. Um, I, you know, this is uh, one of those fun fictional places that you read and you really, you know, want to, you know, visit. Um, let's talk about Normandy Falls. How did this come to be? Did you base it on anything? Did you... Only we would want to visit this place. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, uh, it's great. <laughs> you you know something? You 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 absolutely can visit uh, a place like Normandy Falls. So I'm from uh, the Cleveland, Ohio area, and um, th- this part of the country, you know, sometimes described as the Rust Belt, and had gone through some pretty difficult times. And you see the photos of uh, cities like Detroit or Toledo, Ohio, or oh, Cleveland yeah. in the bad days in the 1970s and 80s. And I'm happy to tell everybody listening that Cleveland is a fantastic place. It's come back. It's big and beautiful. And uh, we've got a world-class art museum and orchestra and so forth. Nice. But whereas Cle- Cleveland um, – looks great and terrific now and there's lots of investment big building boom going on if you drive 20 miles south 30 miles south and you go deep into ohio or probably places like indiana or uh right around the border with pennsylvania near pittsburgh you're going to come across these odd little towns uh and this is what i'm trying to describe in normandy falls they're like cities with industry except they're completely surrounded by a sort of wilderness or like farmland. But in these towns, you'll see factories and railroad depots and sometimes steel mills even. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's kind of, it's weird, you know? So a great example of this, if you're curious, especially for your show, would be a city called Mansfield, Ohio, where I recently gave a reading and Mansfield, they have a big, gigantic prison there, and that's where oh. they shot uh, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And it, it's a wild town. I mean, it's like you, you could tell it was probably populated by who knows, eighty thousand people at one time, and it's just all sort of abandoned now. Not many people live there. There's abandoned houses, abandoned uh-huh. factories, you know. Uh, what I describe um, as a rural Rust Belt dystopia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. No, yeah, it's very, it's very cool. It's very vivid. It's uh, very um, realistic, and I love the little tidbits of uh, history of all the, you know, ghoulish crimes. Mm-hmm. Did you have to, uh, did you make most of those up? Did you get those from research that you did in some place, all these crimes that took place? <laughs> no, no, yeah, I, I made it all up, and in fact, um, I, I like I make up everything, and I even pulled one over on my, my editor who was convinced that um, there's this cook in Normandy Falls. Uh, he, he thinks of himself as a French chef. I mean, it's absolutely preposterous. Here we are in this you know, post-industrial wasteland, and there's this man who's trying to start up a French restaurant. Who the customers would be, I have no idea. And uh, he, he he's unable to make ends meet there in this horrible place of Normandy Falls, so he begins concocting um, a hallucinogenic drink made from a very rare carrot found only in North Africa. It's called the Jazar carrot. And um, real trippy stuff. Well, and I provide this long history of this carrot. Um, I don't know if you've gone quite that far. The, the author, Paul Bowles. Uh-huh. Paul Bowles, who wrote The Sheltering Sky, would grow these carrots, and he would serve them to his house guests, including William Burroughs. Oh, well, I made the whole thing up. I mean, it, it's all bullshit. <laughs> um, oh, I believe it. <laughs> And, you know, 
I had my editor going for a while there. He's like, where now? Where do I get this carrot? <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, but I made it up. There's no such thing as a hallucinogenic carrot. <laughs> Queen Anne's Lake. So all of that, the the, the whole history, all of that stuff is just pure invention. Do you ever play off real history? That's what we tend to do, and then we go sideways. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I I suppose a little bit of literary history and things. Um, Well. I do have, as a central character, Edmund Campion, who's based on um, a Jesuit priest who was hunted down and eventually drawn and quartered in Elizabethan England. And there's a little, there's some, I don't know that there's evidence, but a possibility that uh, Shakespeare's father was a secret Catholic and possibly harboring these renegade priests. Was Edmund Campion one of these guys? Oh, uh-huh. who knows? Nice. But uh, Edmund Campion is a character in my first book too, uh, the Natural Order of Things, and he's a really? he's a struggling writer. Yeah, yeah, he's nice. he, he's a desperate writer. He, he submits his short stories to the school literary magazine, and they're constantly rejected by the editor. So what Campion does in order to try to get published is he uses a series of pen names. And all of the pen names are anagrams of Kevin P. Keating. <laughs> nice. Oh, we nice. hadn't thought of that. <laughs> yeah, this is great. I love this because you know now now I definitely want to get the the natural order of things, and also I love that you do that. We do that. We totally take characters and we cross them over. Like you know, they won't necessarily all be the protagonist, of course, but there will be like you know we have a writer that uh, a fictional writer that, you know, her books show up in, in several of our books and stuff. And then in the one we're currently doing now, we reveal this uh, author's identity. It's fun, you know, and I think, I think readers really like that, you know, I think it's fun. Yeah. Sometimes I worry, (laughs) is this just fun for us writers? (laughs) I wonder if the readers will. I don't know. It seems to me that, if you have fun writing, if you love what you write and you enjoy it, other people are going to too. And if they don't, that's screw them. But, that's you know. right. Yeah. 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 That's, and that's what matters. Yeah, that's right. I, 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 I suppose it would be fun. if someone were, were to read Captive Condition and, and liked it and then they saw the uh, natural order of things and say, hey, I recognize that, that character. That's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But Edmund Campion in that first book is just he's not a, a, a central character, but in the second yeah. book he, he becomes that. So it's like you said, yeah. you know, sometimes he could play small roles or, or leading roles and but yeah. it's, it's yeah. just fun for us, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you think that you'll uh do do you think that you'll continue doing that with your future books? Well, I'm I'm deep into my third book. Uh, now and tentatively called in the secret parts of fortune and it's sort of my um it's my little family tragedy and i love this idea imagine hamlet had he been raised by lady macbeth yeah yeah hamlet always struck me as a little bit too whiny and you know kind of consumed <laughs> with self-pity but you know, yeah, Lady Macbeth gets her around. hands on him. She, yeah, she she'd straighten him out a little bit. But uh, Edmund Campion, uh, <laughs> he has like a little cameo in the third book. Nice. Uh, yeah, we, I love we that. Love that. Yeah, love that's that. so much fun. And you know, Stephen King has always what's the uh, I can't think of the sheriff's name in Needful Things. He he was in several books as just a minor character first. Yeah. Alan yeah. Payne. Ah. Yeah. And he always keeps the each book. Lots of times you see references to other ones, and we love that so much that we decided we should do that too. And oh like, yeah. yeah, even even in, even in uh, it, I think Christine shows up. Very oh, really? 
Yeah, wow. yeah, I think they're, yeah, they're describing this car, and I'm like, that's Christine, unless I'm mistaken. Oh, my God. But either way, yeah. either way it's a lot it's of fun. It's out there. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. But, it, you know, Stephen King's got that luxury of such a huge fan base that uh, oh, yeah. I'm sure a lot of people get a kick out of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. So, Karen, you have... I want to ask yes. you about your characters. Do you oh, sure. keep them in line, or do they do what you want them to do, or do they end up doing what they want to do? Uh, well, you know, it's fun. I was just talking to somebody about this. Um, I start off with a kind of outline, very rough. So I, I sort of have an idea of where I want the story to go and what the character should be doing. But I find um, as I start to write the thing, and I start revising that, and this might sound weird, I suppose, to people who aren't writers, but the characters really do start to like behave in their own way, and they decide they want to do something that the writer doesn't didn't expect. Mm-hmm. You know, they they take on a life of their own. That and means it's good. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like it's the thing is coming to life. Then I, maybe that's the measure. Like you know. Um, your book is going in the right direction if the characters start to, you know, they, they have their own kind of existence and yeah, they're doing totally. their own thing. Yeah. We believe that totally. totally. Yeah. yeah, we do. Yeah. I mean, it's, they, they, and you know, yeah. And if you try to stop them, you know, I, I think that if you, if you try to force it, I know what you mean. It is, it is, it is weird. And I think people who don't write probably would kind of, yeah. I think it's kind of odd, but, uh, but if you, you know, you know, maybe that's the source of writer's block because we don't ever have that problem. Yeah, maybe yeah, it's uh, too much control. I don't know. Maybe we maybe can think it's that do a really good story. Uh, yeah, yeah, it becomes yeah. it becomes kind of a you know, but but anyway, this 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 book, the captive condition is um, what I love about it. So far, like I said, I, I have not finished it, but I will be done with it by the end of this week, and I know I'm going to love it because I'm far enough in that I just know I will. Um, it's got yeah, a really, it's, it's got a really kind of um, quiet horror, which which I like. I call it like a quiet horror. It's like a certain creepiness at the edges of of you know the the you know the the main events, and and uh, so far, I mean things. The Twilight that, Zone feel, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, do you consider yeah. this? Do you consider this a horror story? Right. Well, I, that was one of the tough things about marketing this book. Like, how is this a, a mystery? Is it a crime story? Is it a horror story? If it is a horror story, is it more like a gothic kind of thing rather than, uh, you know, zombie apocalypse, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I... Um, I don't know. I, I just blend genres. I've never been especially interested in one particular yeah. drama. I think like really great stories almost transcend genre, but they, they have elements of a lot of different things. And also I think this is just a personal thing for me. Um, the great achievement I think is when as a writer, you can make someone laugh and then also horrify them. You know, you can right. run the gamut of emotions uh, so that it's yeah. not all one single note for 300 pages of horrible, hideous horror. You know, it's it's funny, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. you need humor to lighten it up. And uh, Hitchcock, that's how he did it. It's Absolutely. A laugh and a bam right in the kiss. Right. You know. Yep, yep. <laughs> And you know, this probably is counterintuitive for someone who does like humor, but uh, I was always a huge fan, and I still am, of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Uh-huh. And his stuff is so atmospheric. Uh, yes. That seems to be his great accomplishment. It's just r- really atmospheric, but it's sort of light on the laughs, you know? <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Yeah. The laughs are good. We need well, and even when you, yeah, even when you, you know, we 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 tend to do a, a lot of humor too. Even when we try not to, we just apparently have the characters. We can't control them. sense of humor. Right. Yeah, I, I I actually see that in 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 the cat condition, and I appreciate that. I love that. I I because it is creepy, it's but it's also humor. got yeah. a, it's also got a certain 
humor to it. And I think that's part of, you know, what keeps it like, I said it, it reminded me a lot of Edgar Allan Poe, and it does because it's, it's very um, <clears throat> eloquent. But it doesn't have that, that darkness that, that, you know, if you read Edgar Allan Poe for, you know, 45 minutes straight or more, you, you kind of feel a little bummed out, you know. It's kind of yeah. <laughs> right. Pretty right. heavy. Pretty heavy. And this, this is more of a, this you know, the, the captive condition is more of a, you know, it does that, but it releases you. And that's, that's really nice. I don't know if you are really aware, you know, that you do that, but it, it's kind of like a catch and release type thing. And I love that because yeah. it's emotional. And it does run the gamut as far as emotions go. So you're not stuck in yeah. that place the whole time. Yeah. Very I'm a huge like fan of uh, Joseph Campbell's work, and oh, many yeah. people know him, right? And very famous yeah. for the hero with a thousand faces. And, and he speaks of this, and he, he says it's like an essential component of stories. And if, as a writer or a filmmaker, or something you're, you're missing this component, the audience will suspect like something's not satisfactory about your tale. And he said that that element is um, you've got to give. Um, the audience like a sense of constriction like uh, the walls are converging it's the thing is getting darker and darker a little bit more menacing the tension is cranking up but then you've got to have that release you know you've got to have the pie in the face or something like that yeah (laughs) and so it's it's like a series of you know the things getting uh darker and darker and then it brightens and so it's kind of up and down up and down right yeah it's great um, another thing I noticed about this, and this is a stylistic thing that I think is really interesting. Um, and I, okay, so the thing I uh, noticed in, in the captive condition is it, it, it's it does first person and third. This is this is interesting to me because this a lot of times generally doesn't work. And in this case, and what I mean is it doesn't work for me. Like it's hard for me to to um, to, to bridge that gap or whatever. But this does it in a way that I didn't even really notice it. Was that difficult right? For maybe you? Um, maybe that's because uh, the the style, the pro style between first person and third person is, is the same, uh, so it kind of flows nicely. And uh, I wanted to create the sort of a, a narrator first person, Edmund Campion, who's so unreliable that he's telling portions of the story in third person and describing things that he could not possibly have witnessed. Um, And so once you get, I don't want to give away too much, but as you near the end of the book, you begin to question the entire narrative. Uh, Is this guy totally delusional? Is this Professor Kingsley guilty of sleeping with his uh, neighbor? Uh, that's the accusation. And that right, this right. Kingsley must be held accountable for his crimes. Well, how in the world would this Edmund Campion know something like this exactly and provide such vivid detail? Well, uh, once you get deeper into it, uh, you, you'll probably see this a little bit and begin to suspect that, you know, this, this Edmund Campion, man, he's he's totally off his <laughs> rocker, possibly. <laughs> he's been yeah. drinking the Jazzar juice. Exactly, exactly. But it, it, you know, it, it really works. I remember um, I read, uh, it was an Agatha Christie book, and I don't remember, and she did it, and it really jolted me. And in fact, I think Stephen King yeah. did it in Christine, and, and that jolted me too. I thought it was odd. Yeah. Pink. Am I yeah. right? So, yeah. But anyway, this really flows. Oh, you really, know, really well. I, I, I can think oh. of. Um, have either of you read um, Floating Dragon by Peter Straub? No. Oh, my. Yes, I did. You have? I never have. And he, he, that's red, a red big Robinson. book. Yeah. 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 It's a really big book. It's kind of messy. It's all over the place. And that book is told third person, third person, third person. And then suddenly, like, page 90, here's first person. And that jarred me, too. You know, it, it yeah. just it wasn't working. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's yeah, a risk. It's, a, it's a kind of experiment. Sometimes it works, sometimes not. Yeah, I didn't even remember that until you said it, because the book was very odd. He's one of my favorite writers, usually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was a huge influence on me, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Ghost Story, I love. I thought oh, they kind of did that in Ghost Story. Did he? I think so. I think he uses, I think it's third person for a lot of it, and then he introduces a first-person character. Interesting. Yes, I didn't didn't notice. I I read it, and I didn't didn't notice that. But it's close. There's an example where it works. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, yeah, no, it can be done. It's just it's interesting to me. Do you have you have, have, oh, sorry, do you have a, a... favorite scene in in the captive condition that you mm-hmm. well tell us first tell us what your favorite scene in this book is and then tell us what the hardest scene in this book was to write and why Ooh. yeah hard question. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well <laughs> my favorite scene uh, this is going to come at the end so I can't really reveal it but uh, the gonk if you've read about this character, he's uh, very angry because um, the chef at the French restaurant has stolen his wife away. And how he's really, for most of the book, he's plotting his revenge and how is he going to get back at um, Xavier Davignon, the the chef at the French restaurant. And that was one of my favorite ones to write. And (laughs) people have told me that they found that just so menacing uh, what right. the, the finale to that particular plot. And while I was writing it, I don't know, I kind of had this uh, wicked little smile on my face. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <That's> nice. <laughs> it was uh, one of those things that's so terrible, but, you know, oh, so good at the same time. I just couldn't help myself. Um, so I like that. Tough, what was most difficult to write? Um, hmm, that's a good the outline, question. Probably, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one I'll have to think about. Pro- probably the entire book. <laughs> yeah. Um, the middle is often oh, hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I was about to say that. It's like now I'm at page 150. <laughs> you know, how do I keep this yeah. thing going? So, exactly. Yeah, I really think the, the the middle the middle is always the toughest. Yeah. Now, do yeah, you still yeah, are you still a professor, an English professor? I am. I teach um, I teach a variety of courses at many different schools. Uh, I'm employed on an adjunct basis, unfortunately, oh. despite having two novels. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's irritating, too, because it takes away from my time to write. I'm, you know, so worried about making a living and teaching at these different places that uh, it's taking away from my writing time. But I'm still teaching. I'm teaching some fiction uh, workshop courses, Um, the... Which I've always been a little bit skeptical about, but I I suppose if someone has like a real burning passion and uh, takes writing seriously and they're totally dedicated to it, I think they can learn something from uh, a fiction workshop class. But um, a lot of times I I, I get non-majors and they're just sort of taking it as a um, like an elective. So for them, I don't I don't know I don't know if it's working. Yeah, you know, yeah. you're a published writer. That means you're a good teacher because you're not trying to write through your students. So many uh, writing student or writing teachers are really bad because they tell the students, "Oh, a, a good student, you can't write that horrible stuff." I, that happened to Alistair, I think. Oh, oh sure, really? Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, sure. You get all kinds of bad advice, and I think that if you, I believe that if you you know, some of the worst advice I was given, you know, speaking of which is, oh, never trust your characters. Never let them do yeah. what they want to do. You know, and then that, oh, I, I yeah. learned to kind of undo that and override it. But I think, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, opinions out there about the way this works. Yeah. And I think the reality is, is if it's in you to write it, you sit down and write it. And that's key. You sit down and do it. I think that you'll go places. That's what I believe. Yeah, I I like when you were told to only write in first person. Yep, yep. First person is the way to (laughs) go. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. Yeah, all kinds of stuff. But, you know, but I I think that uh, I'm I'm interested in in your, uh, do you feel, okay, so so do you feel 
and as it is, there's always this pressure to be good. Um, as a teacher, I would imagine that the pressure is, is even deep, stronger. Do you feel that pressure? Do you feel like I ha- this has to be really, really, really good because, you know, I'm teaching this. <laughs> so I can't fuck at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, uh, not when it comes to the teaching stuff. Um, I don't feel any pressure uh, to impress I don't know. Is this what you're kind of getting at? Like the the students expect something. Uh, like yeah, like if you're if you're um, you know like if you're if you're writing a book and you get it published, you're already you know going to be worried about you know critics, you know people not liking uh, it and it not being you know do, you know yeah. being a teacher. I mean, I would imagine that 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 pressure would be even stronger because you you can't you know you have to know your stuff. I mean, you do anyway. It's not like you're going to get published if it sucks out now. Yeah. But I just think it would be an added pressure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I just started a, a job at John Carroll University. Um, it's in Northeast Ohio, and I'm filling in for. You could look this woman up. A uh, really fantastic and accomplished writer named Alyssa Nutting. She wrote a book, uh, not without some controversy. It's called Tampa. And it's a little bit like uh, Nabokov's Lolita, except uh, the predator in this case is a woman, and she's uh, preying on uh, young men, I think. I have not read it yet, but very accomplished. So I'm coming into this job, and I'm sweating, and I'm thinking, you know, exactly that there's some pressure and some expectations. But um, what I find is that so far in the semester that – the students are young, you know, and they need some basic advice. And uh, I actually try to encourage them uh, a little bit differently. You said your teacher wanted you to write in first person, and I try to get them to actually write in third person. And the the thing that I've noticed pretty consistently in the classes is that uh, people are kind of writing thinly disguised autobiography. Right. And, I find that my job is like, uh, how do I get the kids out of this and so that they're using their imaginations and creativity and they're, they're getting past their own experiences. You can't do that a hundred percent. We, we all include our, our, a little bit of personal experience in our work, I'm sure. But um, I want them to open up a little bit more and go in kind of wild and crazy directions. And I, I give them, um, fun stuff to read, or I think it's fun, like George Saunders, <laughs> he wrote this story called Sea Oak, oh, yeah. totally off the wall. And uh, I say, you know, kind of explore your unconscious a little bit more rather than uh, right. the reality that you lived. Yeah, that's a hard right. lesson to learn. It is. Yeah, it takes time, and they're young, so they haven't experienced a whole ton, and um, but, you know, the other thing, too, that I, I see is that many of them seem to be using uh, the writing class as a kind of therapy. And so I hear a lot of, about a lot of personal problems. And, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I say it's perfectly okay to write about that stuff, but I, I tell them, you know, place the emphasis on describing the experience. Don't describe how you feel about the thing. Don't tell me about your emotions. If you write the thing well enough, if you describe it well enough, the the reader will know how you felt. Just focus right. on just the experience. Um, don't, don't give me like a, a diary of uh, how sad you were or something. Right. Yeah. Writing well, is certainly therapeutic. That's yeah, it, I it love is, writing dark is. stuff. It makes you feel good at the end of the day. You kill people. <laughs> Relax. <Yeah. laughs> it does, but I but I know what you're saying about the the thinly veiled you know autobiographies because even if you mm-hmm. the interesting thing about that is is uh, even if you're reading a fiction book by someone that you've never met and never will meet, you can always tell. And I don't know yeah. why that yeah. is. I don't. I don't. I, I don't know what it is that gives that away, but you can always no. tell when when the writer is present in the story, and that yeah. is something that that I really I really dislike. That I will put a book down for that reason more than anything else. I don't want to read a book about you, so to speak. You know what I mean? I want a good story. Right. And that's you know, yeah, I agree. Um, we are out of time. Oh. And so we, I know that went really fast. 
It was a lot of fun, and I hope that uh, when your third book comes out, you have our email. Uh, we want you to keep in touch, and when you when your next book comes out, totally hit us up. We'll totally have you back. You've been a yes. joy. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, Thank you so much. You're you welcome. Yeah. You have year, a couple? Or? Oops. Sorry about that. I hear a oh. couple people speaking at the same time. Oh, sorry. Do you have a pub date yet? Oh, for the third book? Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I'm still writing oh. that thing. Yeah, it'll okay. take me maybe maybe another <laughs> year. I'll be done. So it'll be a little while. All right. Well, hurry up. But well, I, hope you enjoy the, I hope you enjoy the captive condition. Oh, we are. And I'll, I'll, we'll let you know when we're done, and I'm sure that we will. And before we let you go, um, would you mind uh, letting the listeners know where they can find you online and where, whatever else you want them to know? Well, uh, I do have a blog, and that's kevinpkeating.blogspot.com. And there um, you'll find links to all of my uh, reviews and uh, the essays that I've written sort of in conjunction with the captive condition. I've got something up right now about Edgar Allan Poe, and I have one about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and uh, Freud. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there I, I hope uh, people will find entertaining. It is nice. entertaining. I'm there, yeah. Nice. <laughs> good. We're following you now. <laughs> yeah. right. Thank you. Well, Thank you for being on, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, Until next week, we wish you haunted nights. And sweet screams. All right. I am going to attempt to play our ending music, and if it doesn't play, I'm just going to end the show. So (laughs) thank you, everybody, for listening, and thank you, Kevin, for being our guest. Yes. My pleasure. And it's not going to play. So goodbye. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night. (laughs)